We're recording on Gadigal land and we acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and pay our respects to their culture and elders. Claire Fletcher and we love rom-coms they are our favorite kind of love stories we love reading and watching rom-coms so much that we started writing our own we're always chasing that rom-com feeling you know the one that warm fuzzy one and we might not be experts but by god we're enthusiastic so I wanted to kick things off firstly with an apology or an acknowledgement for a mistake I made last episode I've always wanted to do an apology <laughs> On a podcast. Well, congratulations on this milestone, Karina. Thank you. Thanks. You know, it only took me to episode two. Um, <laughs> but last episode, in our Force Proximity episode, I mentioned a book by Tessa Bailey, Hook, Line and Sinker. But what I actually meant to say was the first book in the series, It Happened One Summer. So it's the Bellinger Sisters series. Um, and I mentioned book two, uh, but it was really book one where uh, our heroine Piper is exiled to a small Pacific Northwest beach town. So that's the small town uh, force proximity that I meant to refer to. And I actually haven't read Hook, Line and Sinker and now um, I'm intrigued. Um, It follows the other Bellinger sister. I'm going to guess there's a sexy fisherman involved. There is, yes. I think he's a crab fisherman. Fox Thornton. So he's a a king crab fisherman. So I look forward to that. But again, I apologise for that inaccuracy. And we want to be as accurate as possible on this podcast. So it was important for me to front up to my mistake. Oh, yes. Well, I think you're forgiven, Karina. Um, And you've just given people an extra recommendation. Exactly. You can thank me for that. And I believe I was a bit of a low talker in the last episode. I'm a low talker from a long line of low talkers, so I'm going to be a lot closer to the microphone this time around. You were fine. I'll scream for both of us. (laughs) So today's episode, what what are we talking about today, Claire? Well, our trope of the day is enemies to lovers. That's my favorite trope, I think. Really? I don't know. We discussed favourite tropes last episode. Now I don't know if I'm consistent with what I said last episode, but for right now in this moment, it's it's enemies to lovers. We've got some really fun stuff to talk about under the trope of enemies to lovers. But before we get to that, I thought we'd start with some trending topics. Mm. There's something a bit fun that you wanted to talk about, bringing me up to date on the world of TikTok, which I don't go near because I am old. I I do. And this is you know, probably will show when we're recording this. So, you know, we're still new, so we're recording a little bit in advance. So hopefully this is still topical by the time it's in your ears. Um, But I have been glued to BookTok for (laughs) this hockey uh, BookTok scandal. Um, So those who aren't aware, uh, hockey romance has really taken off in BookTok. I think it first really started with Icebreaker, which um, is a hockey romance. Um, I have to admit, I have not read one yet. I don't know if you've read any hockey romances, Claire. I have not. I know very little about hockey. So Icebreaker by Hannah Grace. 
Yeah, so um, that's definitely been on my TBR and I have some great friends that say amazing things about that. So I think that was the beginning um, and Hockey Romance has really blown up to the point where this week there was a book talker that came out and kind of commented in a sexual way, I would say, a a very... um, explicit way on Alex Wenberg, who I had to look up, who is an ice hockey player in the Seattle Kraken team. Um, And so basically, a book talk is under fire for being too horny um, for (laughs) hockey players. So yeah, this this book talker uh, creator, her name's Kiara Lewis, came out and she's got like 1.1 million followers, basically fangirling Alex Wenberg, this player, to the point uh, where he felt uncomfortable and felt that he needed to come out and make a statement to say, like, please put a stop to this. So I'm not going to read out what the video, the video has since been deleted. And I think it's all probably tone here um, and her knowing, you know, uh, her followers appreciating her for her tongue-in-cheek ways and book talks passion, but it has raised really interesting points just around that that line between book talks lusty romance obsession and I guess what is deemed as harassment as someone that doesn't yeah I guess play in the book talk space he might have been quite shocked by this attention. There's a lot of interesting things here, Karina. I think and. One of them, I guess, is this idea that the lusty fandom of these romance novels is bleeding over into real life, like they're projecting their fantasies from the Icebreaker series onto actual players. And I had read some stories about how hockey leagues are seeing these incredible spikes in attendance numbers, much more than they've had for a long time. So they should be thanking BookTok for that, really. (laughs) Do you know if we're seeing a similar thing in Australia or is this more a US-based phenomenon? This is the thing. So a lot of the sexual innuendo was obviously around ice. Um, and for me, when I think hockey, and I used to play hockey back in the day in high school. You was, played ice hockey? Oh, field, field hockey. hockey. Yeah, so I think of field hockey. So I'm not even, I'm sure, again, let us know in DMs um, if ice hockey is a thing here. But I don't know that it is. It is. I think it's on a much smaller scale, but I certainly, one of the girls I played footy with years ago also played ice hockey. I just know it for the foam finger. Like, I just want to go and purchase the foam finger. Well, I think the foam finger uh, transcends specific codes in America. <laughs> you can see a foam finger at pretty much any <laughs> type of sport. So I'm sure we could make that dream come true for you. That and a red solo cup and the, beer pong. <laughs> the thing that I always associate hockey with is incredible violence in sport. So, mm. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a sport fan. I've watched a lot of rugby league in my time, so I'm no stranger to a bit of violence on the sporting field. But I was shocked when I um, started watching a bit of hockey with my American husband because violence has been largely stamped out of the games that we see. So in rugby league, if you punch someone, you're out. You're off the field and you're probably going to be missing a few games. Uh, and I think we can all agree it's a good thing. But in hockey, and I'm pretty sure this is still the case, the referee or umpire can actually stop the action of the game so that two guys can punch on. Wow. Yeah. It's it's really part of the DNA of the sport and I think it's a big draw card for people who go to watch hockey traditionally until Mm. uh, the hockey romance and the book talkers Mm. got onto it. So in some ways, you know, I think maybe the book talkers are steering hockey in a perhaps 
you know, a more harmonious direction, make uh, love, not war. Yeah, and I think, like, there's a lot to be said as well um, about platforming sport. And I think we did want to kind of touch on that anyway because, Claire, your new book, Love Match, definitely features sport. Um, so I know that you're all for sport in your romances. Yeah, I was hoping to talk about this. So I think when this goes live, we'll be in early September. So Love Match will have been released. Ooh, but I was yay. Well, I How know. do you feel? <laughs> Future Claire. Pro- project myself into the future. Yeah, I'm probably still uh, shooting myself at that point. <laughs> and so it's a weird emotional cocktail, as you know, when a book is released. There's a lot of excitement, but there's a lot of nerves and, you know, you're really on a bit of a knife's edge. One Instagram comment can, like, put you on cloud nine and then another one or a review on Goodreads, which I don't tend to look at, but... Yeah, any negative feedback can uh, send you plummeting to the depths of despair. That's self-control I do not have, not looking at Goodreads. Um, but, yeah, the the sport um, in Love Match is one of my favourite parts of the book. Oh, I'm so glad. I mean, I, at the moment, you know, we're still in the thick of the FIFA Women's World Cup here in Australia and it's been... I actually got a bit emotional when I was leaving work one day and it was the first game that the Australian women's team were playing and... At the train station at Redfern, there were just so many people getting on the train in their colours, all of these families with their little girls and boys heading to the game. And it just made me quite moved to think how passionately people are following women's sport. I think we've seen that bear out in the viewership numbers and the merchandise sales throughout this tournament, that there's a real appetite for women's sport, which a few years ago, I don't think we could say the same. So I think that's a really positive trend. But yeah, when we think about sport in the context of romance or romantic comedies, it's traditionally been the domain of men. So like your icebreaker hockey romances, you know, like your hockey romances, it's usually about women who connect with men who are athletes. So the, you know, the big burly football players um, or your ice hockey players. And I suppose the attraction there is that, you know, these are people in their physical prime. So they're really ripe um, to be a romantic lead when they're very lustworthy and fit. But as for women's sport, it's not something that we've seen so much in a romantic context. Um, And even in women's fiction generally, when I was trying to think of comp titles for Love Match, which my book centres around a women's rugby sevens team. The pink cockatoos. The pink cockatoos. I love it. And it's not a... It's not a highly competitive team, you know. It's really, they've started from scratch. It's very much amateur. Everyone is learning the ropes. So it's not about being elite athletes. Um, But to me, what I wanted to explore was the beauty of playing in a team and the kind of joy and social connection that that can bring and what that can bring to a community. But in terms of looking for comp titles that I could compare it to when I was pitching to my publisher or when we're thinking about marketing angles, it's quite hard to think of many books for and by women. I can't think of any right now. Well, of course, there's tennis, I think, is probably the thing we oh, see Oh, Carrie commonly. Soto. Oh, yeah, of course. That's T- Taylor Jenkins Reid's latest one. Yeah, Taylor Jenkins Reid has... Well, I suppose you could count surfing as well that she had in Malibu mm. Rising. There was a bit of a sport element there. But Carrie Soto is back, is very much focused on a tennis star. And I think tennis... Tennis is a more sexy sport. I mean, we've seen... There's rom-coms like Wimbledon, which is quite lovely. I've oh, you're right. That. Oh, gosh. Kirsten Dunst? Kirsten Dunst yeah. and I think Paul Bellamy, yeah, as sort of athletes at Wimbledon, which is, you know, a pretty romantic setting. That worked really well for that. Um, and I suppose the other key bit of context here is that women's sports 
women's sporting teams have often been quite a queer space traditionally. Mm. And so I think I think we'll definitely see more romantic stories about women playing sport. I know that um, there's a book coming out in September um, from Meryl Wilsner, who is an American kind of non-binary, uh, slow burn, sapphic romance writer. I've read one of her books before that was set more in Hollywood and it wasn't my favourite, but I am quite excited to see what she does with um, this new book called Cleat Cute. Cleat Cute. Mm, like Meat Cute. Mm. Um, but it's yeah set in a soccer team, Rivals to Lovers. Love it. Mm. And on that note, Enemies to Lovers. Well, yeah, how, how, do, um, how does the Enemies to Lovers and Rivals to Lovers Venn diagram work? So Enemies to Lovers... It's one of the hottest tropes on TikTok right now. I think the tag has something like 300 million views, probably more, to be honest. I think the tag BookTok has billions of views. Um, So 300 million views on TikTok. And personally, as an author, I have written it myself in my upcoming book, Never Ever Forever, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and also my first digital book, Under the Influence, where I've touched on the enemy trope. Uh, So as an author, it's great for showing character development and growth and obviously that tension and that that sexual chemistry or just dramatic tension, not necessarily always sexual, although we are talking about romance here. Often sexual. (laughs) Often sexual. So I was interested, Claire, if you think hate and love are the same emotion. What's that great quote where it's like the opposite of love isn't hate, it's Indifference. Indifference, mm. yeah. yeah. How well, offensive, indifference. <laughs> right, I think, yeah, uh, hate and love, both passionate, right? And I guess that's where that's where these stories can be so kind of heady c- to consume because you're swinging between these emotional extremes that, um, yeah, they can be pretty close together. And I think you see in, a, in an enemies to lovers romance... And often these stories are told in first person, so you're in the character's head and you're kind of hearing their thoughts and it's very confusing for them because they're oscillating, sometimes within the same paragraph, between, you know, often often it's a physical attraction, but, you know, rationally they're like, I could never be with Mm. this person, they are terrible. Touch me, don't touch me. Spit on me, don't. (laughs) I don't know where spit came from. We're really getting uh, we're getting <laughs> we deep here, Karina. I think, yeah, I mean, Anne of Green Gables springs to mind as something that, you know, I was fed, or I fed myself with when I was younger. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why I love that trope. So Anne with an E and Gilbert Blythe um, and the whole, they were rivals at school. They were both the most intelligent people, um, students in their class. Yeah, the pulling pigtails. At one point, Gilbert breaks like a slate over Anne's head. A slate, as in, you know, the olden days, note, note, <laughs> notepad and paper. Um, I was going fam- to say I'm familiar, but I've never actually written on a slate. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not 80 years old, but I know. I've never written on a slate or with a quill. <laughs> I see them as rivals. What constitutes an enemy? Do they have to have had past history or you can you make an enemy of someone that you've literally just met in the street? I think you can. I suppose there are a few dynamics that we see play out commonly that are easy to do. So often, like, would we count exes in this? Oh, for sure. Often it's a, you see a couple who, you know, have been together before, had a really horrific breakup, some kind of misunderstanding that 
means they absolutely detest each other. And again, I guess it's that hate and love being very close together. Um, and then, of course, that sense of competition is another really common one, which obviously leads to rivals, to lovers. But often, you know, these two characters are competing for one opportunity and so it sets them in opposition. It also means they have to keep interacting with each other, thus, you know, ramping up the tension. And I guess they get to know each other better, which is often when... Because enemies to lovers is all about this sort of reversal of expectations, right? Mm. I think, yeah, the classic which we spoke about briefly um, last episode is The Hating Game by Sally Thorne, where they are going after that same thing. They're going for the same job. Um, So we talked about them in forced proximity because they have a shared office, so they can't escape one another. Um, But really, yeah, the tension comes from um, not being able to escape and also being pitted against each other because they both want that work opportunity and obviously find each other... (laughs) very attractive so obviously the hating game is is pretty og in the genre so og like i can't think of i mean there was a reason why it was sally thorne's debut and just a hit i mean it's now been turned into um a movie which i think came out a couple of years ago which i really enjoyed but it's sexy workplace comedy enemies to lovers and I think it does that really great job of that pencil thin line between hate and love Mm -hmm. the banter is just like nothing else yeah so I'm actually I'm holding the book right now it's published in 2016 I've just looked at the little title page I think that was before we even had the names for tropes I mean I'm sure they existed but just not in the way that they roll off the tongue now yeah well that's what I've been really struck by and I'm only halfway through the book but have a pretty good idea um, where it's going. (laughs) And that's fine. Like, they can be predictable. I'm completely fine with that. Yeah. Well, I'm so... It's about the journey of the banter along the way. Exactly. I mean, what I've been so struck by reading this, and I think you could be correct, I was asking you earlier about the timeline of when this was published as opposed to something like Beach Read. Mm, That came, like, three years after, I think. Yeah, which is the first Emily Henry romantic comedy. I think she had published some young adult books before that. But Beach Read put... Emily Henry on the map um, and for good reason it's my favorite of her books and it also has an enemies to lovers mm. I, I I love to be an early adopter of things and I will say I read Beach Read like a month after it came out so I have been on the Emily Henry bandwagon from oh. the very beginning wow I'm a early <laughs> early, early adopter and I've been very late but what I've been so struck by reading the hating game for the first time is it does feel like I can see that this this feels like the original mm. of the genre. Mm. And, and it's what I go back to as well. Like I have reread. I don't reread a lot of books, especially romantic comedies, um, just because there's so many great ones out there. But it does feel like a text, like an original text. Mm. Yeah, I can definitely feel the DNA of Even the so way you're books. holding that book <laughs> now <laughs> makes it feel like a sacred text. A sacred text. Mm. It's pretty horny. Very horny. I mean, you know, we haven't had any, uh, shall we say, denouement uh, yet, but there's definitely been a lot of, like, pashing in elevators Mm. and feeling each other It's amazing how sexy fluorescent lights can actually be. Yeah. One thing I am always often struck by in books, though, that I don't love is this idea of the dynamic between the the tiny girl Mm. and the big guy. And she is. I think she's referred to as shortcake. Yes, yes. Yeah. he calls her shortcake. She's also from a strawberry farm. Mm. So she's like, oh, 
he's so mean. He's undermining mm. my background. He doesn't respect me. But obviously he's calling her shortcake because she's adorable. Mm. But, yeah, I don't know. It just doesn't always sit well with me. It feels a little bit like fan fiction sometimes or like the kind of stories you'd write to yourself when you're in primary school, just sort of imagining yourself as this perfect, delicate, tiny flower with this big bear of a man with his big hands. And I don't know. I mean, there is... There's certainly something hot about that dynamic sometimes, but... Yeah, I think we're moving away from that. So I wonder if physical description is so important um, in, yeah, and enemies to lovers or actually just any rom-com book moving into 2023, Mm. 2024. Yeah, I think we were planning to talk about that a little more... Totally. ...later on, maybe. I think it's, yeah, very relevant. For me, um, the biggest issue I think I have with this trope is how sometimes it can lean a bit too far into that cruelty, like what is pulling pigtails and what is abuse, (laughs) like quite frankly. And like you say, the knife edge between love and hate, this banter, you know, it's right up there on the line. Like sometimes they say really heinous things Mm. to each other. Mm. And I suppose that's often, you know, a point, a dramatic point in the book when someone goes too far and they they recognise it but often because of the nature of their enemies' relationship, they don't feel like they can apologise. And I guess that's where you get character development and and conflict. But I suppose the other thing that I'm curious about is, you know, as writers and as readers, like likability or lovability is so critical in these genres. Like you need to have characters that the reader is happy to spend time with and wants to, you know, wants to see them succeed and be happy how can you have characters hating each other but you don't hate them? Mm. Exactly. Have you figured it out? <laughs> no, <laughs> I have not. Is it that, you know, uh, I'm this way for the whole world but for you I'm different? I don't know, you know, that only you see this side of me. That's a good one. Yeah, well, certainly in the hating game, you know, Lucy, the main character, is beloved by everyone. She's a really sweet girl. And then with Joshua, Joshua Templeman. I think that's his name. It is yeah. his name, yes. It's funny how those things stick mm. with you. And full names always. Um, yeah, but with Joshua, she, I guess, maybe gets to indulge a different side of herself. And I guess maybe that's going to bear out more later in the story, but he certainly, you know, criticises her for not being assertive with other people in their workplace. Mm. And with him, she's a totally different person. Like, mm. she's quite dominating. She's quite um, very assertive. Do you have a favourite text in this trope? Well... Call text to intellectualise. I would probably go back to Pride and Prejudice. Oh, that is the original text. Yeah, and I guess I hadn't really thought about it as enemies to lovers until we started kind of planning out this episode. I mean, Pride and Prejudice is probably my favourite book Mm. of all time anyway. Do you know the first line? (laughs) I I was about to say, obviously I do, and then I went to quote it and I... The truth universally acknowledged that a young man in possession of good fortune should be in want of a wife. Yes. Yeah. Okay, you pass. (laughs) Pride and Prejudice was... So the BBC miniseries came out in 95. I was in grade six at primary school. I remember this too. I mean, it was a huge cultural moment. It's so interesting to read Bridget Jones's diary and see it's kind of playing out in real time for her as well that, you know, everyone would be rushing home on a Sunday night to make sure that they didn't miss the new episode. I mean, it was just 
it was so big at the time, I was obsessed with it. My sister and I, you know, she's younger than me and so we would play Barbies and we had them acting out Pride and Prejudice. We had a moment where someone someone pushed like a piano out the window to crush Mr Collins. That was one of our Barbies storylines. Wow. <laughs> we got deep into the side characters for sure. Um, Sounds like a weird Barbie moment, if anyone that's seen the film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think it would have hurt it, the mm-hmm. film. I think it could have been a nice... A nice rewrite there, uh, Jane, if you're taking notes. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, Pride and Prejudice, the dynamic between Lizzie and Darcy is so delicious. And, again, I guess it's because, you know, you have these initial misunderstandings that lead two characters to resent each other. There's obviously a physical attraction there regardless, that they're both kind of fighting. And then I suppose when his declaration of love and his proposal of marriage kind of comes out of nowhere. It's such a big turning point, such a delicious moment. And then, you know, Lizzie sort of unravels and unpicks the history and all of these assumptions that she's made. Can't go past it. That's a great one. You stole mine. Sorry. <laughs> Luckily, I have a backup. <laughs> I still can't go past The Unhoneymooners by Christina Lauren, a US duo um, that I think I also spoke about last episode. I don't know if you've read that one, Claire. I have not. I think I love the setup of this one. Uh, so basically, um, two sworn enemies take a trip of the lifetime to Hawaii on the honeymoon of their respective siblings. So basically, they're enemies at the wedding. So um, their brother and sister are getting married. Olive, the protagonist's identical twin sister, Amelia, is getting married um, to Ethan's brother. And they fall ill with gastro. And so this holiday, this trip of a lifetime, can't go to waste. So, of course, <laughs> they, uh, yeah, they, they go on this honeymoon. Um, gastro as a plot device. Actually, that crops up in something else I was going to talk about today. Yeah, actually, it's probably, I mean, look, I would just recommend anyone to go and check out The Unhoneymooners. Again, it's another one that I have reread um, a few times just because I love the tension. Um, also, false proximity because they're in a hotel room. Um, but... Yeah, it definitely made me think about a book that we've both recently read. The Love Contract? The Love Contract, mm. yeah, which is, uh, will it be out by the time this episode drops? Potentially. Yeah, I think she's released the same day as Love Match, if not the day after. So, yeah, The Love Match is the debut romantic comedy from Steph Fizard. I've been really excited for this book because it won the Banjo Prize, which is an unpublished manuscript prize that HarperCollins publishers have specifically for commercial genres. So this was the prize Which that is such a great opportunity. It's really good. Mm. It, it opens every year early in the year. I think it usually closes in about May. So if you're beavering away on a rom-com... Beavering away. Oh, I love sorry. That. <laughs> no, I love that. If you're working away <laughs> on a romantic comedy of your own, um, definitely keep the Banjo Prize in mind. It was what I was aiming for when I was trying to finish Five Bush Weddings um, when I was pregnant and uh, didn't get anywhere... In that competition. Oh, um, look Look where you are now. I think it worked out. I think I've finally let go of my resentment about <laughs> it. I obviously followed the progress of the Banjo Prize and it was really a lot of crime and thriller books that were getting up in it until Steph Beisard, The Love Contract, was the first rom-com that won the Banjo Prize. So I was really excited to see that. And to me, that was more evidence that 
our beloved genre is mm. um, really having a renaissance at the moment. Steph's book is definitely one to look out for. I think we both blurbed it, so we are going to be talking about it a bit later in the show. But some other enemies to lovers that jumped to mind as standouts, Claire? I really loved Nina Kenwood's book, Unnecessary Drama. Um, technically, I think this is a new adult um, audience book. It's really about that period when you've just left high school and you're starting uni. And so it follows a girl who's left her small town and she moves to a share house to start uni in the city. And then she gets there and her nemesis from her hometown is also sharing the house. And that's a great word as well, don't you think? Nemesis. Mm. Mm. Nemesis Could, comes up a bit. Yeah. You know, lovers. It's one of my favourite words, actually. I mean, what's beautiful about unnecessary drama is the voice. So you're really in the head of Brooke, who's a bit of an overthinker. She's a bit of an anxious person. She likes to have everything planned out. And she was not planning for this you know, guy from her hometown who she actually was friends with for a while and then they kind of fell out. Um, so she's really nervous around him. They're in this share house with another person and it's all about having... They don't want to have unnecessary drama in the house. So ah, no, hence the title. Yeah, no relationships, no weirdnesses, no drama. Brooke is by nature not a very casual person, so she really tr- struggles to keep it cool. But, yeah, it's just a beautiful, beautiful story and I'd recommend that one really highly. Oh, I love it. And, I mean, it was hard just to kind of pick a couple, right, to focus on because our list is endless, especially as I started the segment with it's a, a book talk favourite. So we've got The Love Hypothesis, a Spanish Love Deception. Um, we spoke about M. Hen, so it's not just her first book, Beach Reads, but also Book Lovers, um, which I think was last year's release, Red, White and Royal Blue for, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Casey McQuinston. Red, White and Royal Blue is super fun. I think there's a film coming out it of is, that yeah. pretty soon. It, it must be so tough because I know that with the SAG-AFTRA slight strike, wow, that's a difficult phrase to say, with the SAG-AFTRA... Harder than rural rom-com? Yeah, it's <laughs> up there. But, yeah, I, I follow Casey on Instagram and she hasn't been able to really share mm. about, you know, this exciting thing of her film being made because she's obviously in solidarity with the writers and the actors who are striking. Um, But Red, White and Royal Blue has been out for a few years. Very fun. Um, It's a, what do we say, M4M? -hmm. It's it's a romance between, well, enemies to lovers romance between two guys, one of whom is the son of the President of the United States and the other is kind of a, a young prince from the UK. So really fun. Really fun, that one. And a little steamy as well. I'm looking forward to the adaption of that one. Shelf love. Now, we always have a rom-com on our bedside table. Um, I actually, in non-rom-com news, I finally read Yellowface, um, finished that yesterday, and love, 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 have been online reading all the things about it. Um, That's what happens when you read a good book, right? You just want to chat about and see what other thoughts are. Um, That's you know, by no means platforming um, a lesser-known book. <laughs> that one's L out there. Um, well, I think the thing with Yellowface, and I haven't read it yet, it's it's coming up soon on my TBR, but it's speaking to a lot of the current issues in our culture and especially in literature and publishing. I think that's why so many people are so keen to talk about it. 
I think that's where I got the extra level of enjoyment as well because it was so accurate in terms of a lot of the publishing things I've even experienced in the last couple of years. Um, yes, recommend that one. Um, but what is waiting uh, for me to pick up is debut rom-com that's just come out by Amy Hutton, which is published by Simon & Schuster. Sit, stay, love. Oh my so, God, this looks so cute. Yeah, so uh, I was lucky enough to hear Amy do a reading uh, from the book a week or so ago and it sounds like it's got lots of adorable pe pets. I think the main character, Sarah, owns a pet shelter and, of course, yeah, we have a famous actor who's introduced at some point to, yeah, I think Sarah saves Ethan from a German shepherd and that's their meat cute. Um, we've spoken about meat cutes. And so I think it's a fresh take on friends to lovers, which is a trope I'm sure that we'll get to on the podcast. It just looks like a cute, uplifting, all the feels read. Uh, and I cannot wait to get started on that one. And Amy is actually a local author to me. I live on the Northern Beaches and she's also Northern Beaches. So it's really lovely to see, um, yeah, such talent locally. I saw that the in the publicity when they sent out early copies of the books, they sent it with a donation in the per like the person's name to an animal shelter, which just yeah. seems like such a beautiful... Idea. And, you know, I spoke to her about that and she didn't even know that they were doing that. So she, when she got her certificate, she was just, like, Aww. overjoyed. Yeah, the sweetest. Like, publish books and save animals. Like, what more can you want? That's the good stuff. Mm. Um, well, I wanted to talk a little bit about The Love Contract, which we mentioned earlier, Steph Beisard's Banjo Prize winning debut romantic comedy. I really enjoyed this. I think it's genre perfect. I said to you, it read itself. Like, I don't even remember turning the pages. Like, <laughs> some divine being just turned them for me. I don't know. Just it delivered weird. it into your mm. eyeballs. Aha, uh -huh. it was so weird. It's a great premise. Um, so as we said earlier, it's kind of enemies to lovers. So Zoe's living next door to Will, who is, you know, the very buttoned up, beautifully suited, um, reserved lawyer. Zoe's a solo mum by choice who has a little girl called Hazel and Zoe's having a really hard time getting daycare for Hazel. She needs to get childcare so that she can go back to work because she's the sole earner in the family. And so she kind of strikes up this contract with Will in which they will pretend to be co-parents of Hazel so that um, you know, Will has a connection that can get Hazel into daycare and Will also kind of needs to present more of a, I guess, family-friendly front at his law firm so that he can get a promotion. So it's the classic fake dating scenario. Fake dating as well. Yeah. Which is our next episode. Mm. So obviously, you know, you have all of the ups and downs of motherhood and I thought Steph did that really well. Having had a toddler of my own, um, there was a lot that was ringing really true to me and, and Steph has actually just had her second baby mm. recently. How is she launching the book and just had a baby? Whew. I know. Well, it takes a village. Mm. It takes good uh, good childcare. So hopefully The mummyune is strong. Is mm. that mummyune? <laughs> well... And wow. a manny. Maybe a manny. A, a manny next door. Yes. Well, they refer to Will as a bit of a manny. Mm. It's gorgeous and I found it incredible that she manages to use a bout of gastro as a kind of, you know, romantic plot line. 
but you know that's motherhood, right? It's all a really disgusting stuff alongside this sort of sublime love, and I think Steph has captured the balance of those things really well. It actually lends itself quite well mm-hmm. to the comedy and um, a beautiful slow blooming rom- romance. I yeah, I can't wait to see how successful. Um, that book is I think it's going to be massive on TikTok I think it's also got a lower price point um, which is I think going to really help in terms of getting the word out there it's coming out straight in the small format which Mm. is uh, perfectly purse-sized perfectly (laughs) purse-sized perfect pairings (laughs) come to that time Finally, <laughs> thanks for sticking with us. We have a lot to say today. Yeah, we thought that our episodes, you know, we're going to be around that half an hour mark, but uh, I have a feeling that's going to be hard for us to stick to. So let us know <laughs> what you think, if you'd like us to be more concise, or if you'd prefer our, our gushing about rom-coms, which is what we're all here for, right? Mm. I wanted to recommend something to go with a book that we, or a movie that we actually didn't even end up touching on. I know. <laughs> I'm just looking at our notes and realising how could we have not mentioned... Well, we didn't really talk about films much today. We didn't, which I think is good. Sometimes we'll be more film-heavy. Not to say that there's not great enemies to lovers films. Um, The classic being... 10 Things I Hate About You. Mm, So good. Mm, I still can't watch that without getting a little bit sad, though. It's Heath Ledger at his most beautiful. Mm. I mean, it's a wonderful time capsule of that time. And I don't know if you soaked up any of the amazing um, kind of stories that came out around the anniversary of that film in the last year or two, but they did a really great oral history on Vulture where they checked in with a lot of the cast to hear, you know, their versions of what it was like at the time. And it just sounds like it was just a magical bubble kind of experience for all those young actors making that film. It Mm. sounds like it was so fun. Like, it was almost like they were at school together. Mm. Ten Things I Hate About You is based on Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew. Something that we see quite a lot um, is contemporary retellings of classic texts and Shakespeare, obviously... The original dramatist. Mm. Um, I want to do a whole podcast episode just on retellings. So I'm trying to think of my own retelling because don't you then like already have a whole bunch of foundation to work with and it will make the job easier well, or I mean, harder? Pride and Prejudice, Bridget Jones mm. and stuff. Like I could do an entire episode mm. on Pride and Prejudice. Okay, we'll add that to the list. Yeah. Um, but what we did want to talk about today with our perfect pairings was if you enjoy a retelling like 10 Things I Hate About You, which takes the plot line of The Taming of the Shrew into a modern setting, we think that you will love Without the Further Ado by Jessica Detman. Jessica Detman, friend of the pod. Uh, Claire and I fangirled over Jessica Detman <laughs> publicly as well, so Jess is well aware. Her first book, How to Be Second Best, I just adored. And I think you have an interesting story about where you read that, right? Well, I read How to Be Second Best while I was in the hospital bed after I gave birth to my daughter. Um, so, yeah, I really associate it with that very special time. Although I have reread it since then, thinking, you know, maybe my brain was a bit hopped up on hormones. Maybe I had overinflated how incredible this book is. But no, it's just that good. Mm. And so it's very, I think, surreal to both of us now to kind of almost be able to count Jessica as a friend when for a long time she was kind of the the goal for me to Mm. have a career like hers to write books that are funny clever 
you know, witty, the way that Jess uses words and wordplay, mm. I think is pretty unparalleled in yeah. Australia. I've actually heard Valerie Koo um, from the Australian Writer Centre say that it's one of the most popular requests when people are enrolling in courses to say, will this make me write like Jessica Detman? <laughs> um, so, yeah, her voice is very distinctive in that um, it's so witty, so observational, so readable, um, which is why, without hesitation, we can recommend without further ado... Um, a scene that sticks out to me, and it's at the beginning, so no spoilers, is similar, I think, in terms of staying with you, the gastro scene for you, Claire, in the love contract, is this spaghetti shower scene. <laughs> and I think I messaged Jess about it after reading it. I just thought it was amazing. And again, how realistic that was. That scene is bonkers. Mm. And it's kind of, it's to me, it's so specific I don't need to ask Jess about this. Mm. It's so specific. Like, could you just make up a scene like that? It must have a kernel in mm. reality, which is... We know how these things go. <laughs> so the other reason I love this book is the not-so-perfect Hollywood ending. Mm. Still a happy ending, uh, but not picture-perfect. Um, and I love that, yeah, the heroine was um, older, unpartnered, no kids. Um, so I found that personally, on a personal level, really relatable to... Um, you don't meet, read that many rom-coms um, with that heroine again. Hopefully that's changing. Um, but I think we could probably have another whole episode on character archetypes. All these episodes. <laughs> yeah, so Without Further Ado was released earlier this year, I think in March. It's Jessica Detman's third novel, Out with HarperCollins. Uh, it's just brilliant. It's obviously drawing on the plotline of Much Ado About Nothing. And if you seek out interviews with Jessica. Oh, sorry, I didn't say that. I thought, oh, the title says that. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty obvious. Mm. Um, But, yeah, really try to find an interview with Jessica where she talks about the origin story or the inspiration for this book um, because it it all hinges on the very opening credits scene of the beautiful adaptation of Much Ado About Nothing from the 90s starring Emma Thompson and Kenneth Brimmer, which I had to study in Year 10 English. We skipped that one. I don't know. I think we did Hamlet and Othello and just, yeah, bypassed that. But I have heard Jess obviously chat about, you know, there's a huge departure from the plot (laughs) for obvious reasons. Um, (laughs) That, you know, it's not quite a retelling. Um, What stand-ups now? We could, you know, go through Shakespeare now and then. We could do it now and then for Shakespeare. (laughs) Brutal. (laughs) Very brutal. I think um, that's brought us to the end of the episode, Claire. We'll link all the books and movies that we mentioned in the show notes. Um, sign up to our Substack to make sure that you get the lowdown straight into your inbox. Follow us on Instagram, which is now set up at that romcom pod, and feel free to DM us anything that you're interested in talking about further from the show, and also anything that you're interested in hearing about um, in upcoming shows. Thank you so much for listening. Thank we'll see you. See you next time. Bye.